So the title for this evening's talk is, Who Am I? The title and the subject that we'll be exploring. Is the mic on? So a very essential part of Dharma practice, Dharma inquiry and meditation, is to really look at fundamental questions of what it means to be here, what it means to be alive, what it means to be awake, what it means to be human. What are we doing here? this grand experiment called life. Who are we? What are we? How do we know ourselves? How do we know what's true? There's many, many questions in life, in ourselves, in Dharma teachings. What is it that takes birth? that grows, that develops, that matures, that ages and dies. So I want to be looking at some of these questions. How is it that we come into this world very open, naked, pure in some ways? And then as we develop, as we grow developmentally, we develop an ego structure, thought structures, self-concepts, ideas about who we are, and that freshness, that openness, that, that fresh canvas that we came in with starts to become more opaque starts to ossify, starts to become fixed, solidified into habits and patterns and neuroses. Someone once asked Trungpa Rinpoche, what is it that gets reborn? Since there's no essential self in Buddhist teaching to be reborn, what is it that gets reborn? He said neurosis. Our neurotic habits are what continue from life stream to life stream. So, and the Buddha also uh, was, lived at a time when these questions were very uh, paramount in spiritual culture. It was a very alive hotbed of inquiry, lots of wandering ascetics and different traditions trying to answer this question, who are we? What are we doing here? There was this um, growing sense of what it means to be an individual as opposed to be uh, part of a tribe or a collective, this growing sense of individuality. And what is that? And who is that? Who is it that's an individual? <clears throat> So, 
in some ways, the Buddhist teaching was uh, an attempt to understand who we are and, and to attempt to understand the misperception of who we are and how that misperception creates suffering. In the same way that much of the Enneagram teaching explores identity, our fundamental misperceptions of ourselves and who we are, how we create certain habits and views and actions and patterns based upon that misperception. So one of the things the Buddha said uh, after his awakening, this is one of the first things that um, came to him, so it said, was he, he sat down on the night of his enlightenment determined to uh, attain awakening, freedom from suffering, to understand the truth of his true nature. And he said this about that time. He said, seeking but not finding the house builder, I traveled through rounds of countless births. Oh, painful is birth ever and again. House builder, you have now been seen. You shall not build the house again. Your rafters have been broken down. Your ridge pole is shattered. My mind has attained the peace of nirvana and reached the, and reached the end of every kind of craving. So the Buddha is talking about the house builder as this aspect of the mind, the egoic mind, that builds, that creates, that creates castles and houses and mansions and stories and fantasies and lives and realms about ourselves. We're forever building, we're all house builders, building stories, building uh, ideas and views and constructs about ourselves, about who we are. And the Buddha said that the, the misunderstanding, the misperception and the attachment grasping after a sense of self that we've constructed is the greatest source of suffering. So when... Um, Someone was talking on the panel today uh, about um, someone from the four, I forget the lady's name. Um, She was talking about she wakes up and then very soon after she wakes up, she didn't say what it was like when she wakes up, but then the story kicks in. The, the, The four thinking process kicks in of, uh, deficiency or longing or insufficiency. And that reminded me of experience that we all can notice when we first wake up, when the house builder hasn't put on his tools and his belt and his work clothes, hasn't you know started the machine rolling of me, and we just wake up and there's a moment, sometimes several moments or minutes of quietness, of peace, where we just... We're in that more undifferentiated consciousness place, like we probably were when we came in as a baby, where the self-construct hadn't developed yet. So there's just a sense of immersion, diffusion, connection with all of life. 
and then we're lying in bed and and then suddenly the, the, the mind starts rolling. Oh, what have I got to do today? Oh, maybe there's not enough time. Oh, all those things I didn't do yesterday. You know, I really should have done them yesterday. Uh, I'm really, and then we start to feel scarce and we haven't even had breakfast mm-hmm. and we're already in turmoil or in some kind of deficiency place. Does that sound familiar? So I want to talk a little about the sense of self that we all have and cherish and what that, what that does to our experience, the way we relate to that. One of the, my favorite teachings of the Buddha, he says, that which we conceive is always other than what is so that which we conceive, that which we think of, is ever other than the the way we see it. That's particularly true with the way that we see ourselves. There's that bumper sticker that goes around on cars that says, it's all about me. It's very true, isn't it? It's all about me. Another bumper sticker I saw, actually it was a license plate. They've taken this a little too far. I'm accused to know what number they are. Uh, it said, number one loser. <laughs> this is from Wei Wu Wei. Why do human beings suffer? Because <clears throat> they spend 99% of their time focusing on themselves, and there isn't one. <laughs> or not, there isn't a self in the way they think it to be. He says, we're barking up the wrong tree. So have you noticed as you're sitting and you're walking the mind creating stories and dramas this retreat? Little scenarios, fantasies, fear, catastrophes. And what are they mostly about? Me, right? How will I be doing? How will my relationship be? Everything, is, everything comes back. We can be, think of the most obscure thing like developing them developing a space station on Mars, and we'll find a way to self-reference it. <laughs> well, how would it be for me if I lived there? You know, maybe could I make enough money to, you know, what my family think of me? And <laughs> the fives are really thinking, "Wow, that sounds really good, Mars. I don't know. That sounds pretty spacious up there." So this, this, the way that we get pulled into this mind is very powerful. I'm going to read something here from Byron Katie, who teaches so beautifully about the power of the mind. She says, Mind gives birth to infinite worlds of this and that, loss and sorrow, good and evil, It's complete from the beginning, and yet it's inexhaustible in the production of what isn't. Believing what you think, you're carried off into the endless drama of the self. Until there's peace within you, there's no peace in the world, because you are the world, and you are the earth. When the I arises, welcome to the movie of who you think you are. But if you question it, there's no attachment. It's just a great movie. Get the popcorn. Here it comes. 
I live in completeness, in completeness, all of us do, though we may not realize it. I don't know anything. I don't have to figure anything out. I gave up 43 years of thinking that went nowhere, and now I exist as a don't-know mind. This leaves nothing but peace and joy in my life. So that moment in the morning is when the I thought pops up, and the whole story of me and my gets created. Uh, The self gets born, takes birth in another drama, another unfoldment. We get to the dining room and there's not quite enough food to go around. The self takes birth. What about me? Or what about the others? Or what about how am I going to deal with this situation? When a wandering um, monk came to the Buddha to test his teaching, at the time there was a lot of rivalry between all the different teachers and teachings so that they always come check each other out and do his little Dharma debate, little Dharma sparring. And so this uh, wanderer, Vachagota, asked the Buddha, he said, well, in your teaching, is there a self? And the Buddha remained silent. And then Vachagota said, well, is there not a self? And again, the Buddha remained silent. And the man got fed up with his lack of response and wandered off, tutting and disgruntled. And then Ananda, his faithful attendant, asked the Buddha, he said, why didn't you answer him, you know? Reasonable question, is there a self, is there not a self? That's what you teach about. And the Buddha said, if I'd answered in any of those directions, it would have, he would just would have picked it up as a view, as another idea to get attached to, to, to create more thoughts, stories, dramas about. These teachings are about direct experience. So although some of the things that we teach us are conceptual, they're an invitation to look into your experience to see, is this true? What is this thing called the I-thought, called the sense of self that I cherish so much, that I take to be so who I am? So often this teaching, um, the teaching of anatta, anatta, is translated as no self, as if we have no self. And people go, well, wait a minute, what about me? You know, I have a body and I have a mind and I have a personality and I have a history and you can go to check my car and there's my registrations in there. And we're not talking about that level of identity. Clearly we exist as a human being, there's a person, there's history. It's useful to have names like Mark and Anna, otherwise, how would you distinguish us? There's a, a woman I know who um, used to belong to a community where they thought the, the problem of, of our suffering was around languaging, especially around the languaging of the self. So they refused to use pronouns. There was no I, or there's no you, or there's no we, or they, there's just... So she, she caught these two people having an argument and one was saying, this one is very disgruntled with that one over there. <laughs> and she thought, mm, this isn't going to do it. This, this languaging, that's not what it's about. <clears throat> but when we pay attention to our experience, what, would, what do we see? We see a... a, a, a um, a great waterfall, a flux of ever-changing experience. 
thoughts, feelings, moods, sensations, ideas, perceptions, coming and going, coming and going. And what we do to that, to make sense of that, is we, we construct, we make constructs around it. This is me, this is who I am, this is how I am, this is how I live and move. The, um, the crazy wisdom teacher Nasruddin puts it this way, making sense of it. He goes into a bank and uh, he wants to cash a check. And so the woman behind the, the bank teller says, well, let me see your ID. So he's fumbling around in his pockets and he pulls out a mirror. He goes, oh, yeah, that's me. <laughs> and we wake up in the morning and we go to brush our teeth or comb our hair. No, yeah, that's me. That's who I am. Familiar. And what is that pointing to? What is it? Who is it we're pointing to when we say, that's me? Often I, I know when I've been doing long retreats or I've been out in the wilderness for a while and I haven't seen a mirror, but I've just been with my felt sense experience, and then I suddenly see a mirror and I go, huh, that's not what I'm experiencing in here. That's, that's just some kind of image that doesn't correspond to my felt sense of myself. Or we sometimes look in the mirror and go, God, I'm getting a lot older, but I actually don't feel the age of that person. I feel 20 years younger. So, we, so the, one of the problems with our concepts is they're very static. They're very fixed. And our experience is an ever-changing, fluid, dynamic reality. Stephen Batchelor puts it this way. He says, a low one sense of I may appear as standing in isolated position, opposition to the natural world. Meditative inquiry erodes this fixated assumption of self-centeredness. Experiencing this paradoxical nature of self results in a loss of alienation and is a reawakening of a sense of the world in which one is not a stranger but a participant. So one of the ways the Buddha asked us to inquire into, into the nature of the self is to pay attention to our changing experience, to see if there's anything to hold on to, anything solid enough, lasting enough, enduring enough, to say, oh yeah, this is who I am. And it seems like we have these habits and patterns that endure for a long time, painfully so. But can we really say, that's who I am? You know, it's interesting doing this retreat where we're paying attention to our habits, to our fixations, and these may be very long, enduring habits. And it's very easy for the self, for the I, the mind to go, oh, that's who I am. I'm a seven with this particular fixation, with this particular wing, this instinctual subtype. But is it really all of who we are? Or is it the way that our is the way that the part of our nature congeals, solidifies into a certain habit. But it would be a mistake to say that's all of who I am. And I know sometimes, um, and I've done this, and I watch other people do that, and the Enneagram can get criticized for, for um, seemingly to solidify who we are. Well, they're just an eight. You know, they're, always, they're always that bullshit. Just don't worry about it, you know. 
all those sevens, you know, they'll, they'll always be late for the meeting, you know. They're always off doing three things before they get here. It's okay. And so we can, we can solidify and pigeonhole and box people in a way that's, that's actually an incorrect use of the Enneagram. So just to be watchful of that tendency of, as we learn about ourselves and our, and our Enneagram type and our particular fixation, to not then, then suddenly reduce ourselves to this. You know, we all have, as, 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 as David says, you know, we're human being first. We, have, we have, each have all aspects of the Enneagram in us. And we have, you know, certain traits more particularly developed. And we certainly have continuity in time, or it seems like we have continuity in time. And yet, if we look to our physical experience, our bodily experience, you know, are we the same person as the pictures we see of us as a baby, or as a child, or as a teenager? or at college. Is that the same person? There's not a single cell in the body that's the same. When we go to the hairdressers and there's a lot of hair lying on the floor after we've got a haircut, do we say, oh, there's me. I'm going to take me home. No, we go, oh, it's yuck. That's kind of dirty and like, get it away, you know. Or when we dust in our house, you know, you know, most of the dust in your house is actually skin. I hate to tell you the news. Seventy <laughs> percent of dust is human skin, you know, because we 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 grow it every month. Every month we have a new set of skin. So where does it go? I have to rub off somewhere. I'm just going to peel it off and put it in the trash. <laughs> Although it'd be cleaner. <laughs> so. Um, what I understand of, uh, from developmental psychology, we, um, for the first three to six months, or even longer than that sometimes, um, we don't have a sense of self in the, in the way that we think we do now. It actually it, it starts as a self-image or self-concept and grows and becomes established and, and solidified through reflection and through experience. So um, it's something that we, we, de- we develop. It's not inherent to who we are. It's something that we, we use, we learn, we, need, we, we actually need to function to have this self-structure. And yet, it's not all of who we are. And what's so wonderful about the Enneagram as I'm continuing to learn about it and study it is it helps to see how when that development takes place, how, we, how we, st- we each structure into a certain stream, into a certain flavor or character. Partly arising in the same way that uh, Buddhist teaching explains, we become disconnected from our true nature, from an aspect of our essence, from our truth. And so we develop some, the ego makes some kind of compensation for that as a way of compensating for the lack of connection to true nature. I'll read something from... No, I don't. I changed my mind. So, for instance, for a seven, we're thinking there's a, such a deep belief that happiness lies outside of ourselves that it's not okay just to be here as we are, 
So we're forever pursuing experience to get away from pain. And sometimes it can seem like the seven fixation being particularly uh, narcissistic and self-focused, and we certainly can be that. And what's interesting is a seven um, that has that particular tendency um, is that fixation and focus on oneself and, and fulfilling the needs of the self and getting all these experiences don't ultimately do it. And we all have this tendency of seeking and wanting, as we've talked about before. Or when the five gets the space that they've finally been craving and they start to feel aloneness or isolation or separation. So the question that comes up for me is, where do we look to for our wisdom and clarity in this mystery, this dilemma of being human? If we look to the mind, the mind lives in scarcity. It lives in deficiency. It lives in restlessness. The mind is forever, the ordinary thinking mind is forever ill at ease. Like the mind of the six that's scanning, that's worrying, that's sensing for threat and danger. It's a mind that's ill at ease. I remember I did a, a self-retreat once um, at a friend's house. they just moved into this house, uh, and it was a, a friend's, they were a couple, and they're both sixes. And I swear I took on some of the, the flavor of being a six on that retreat which was very interesting. And one thing that happened that, that really sparked this off was that I'd just come into the country and I'd just gotten a green card and I think I may have just gotten married um, that allowed me to get the green card. I forget exactly the history, but I was doing a self-retreat and one day this car came by and someone stuck their head out the window and took a photograph of me looking out the window. And then they drove around the block, and, and I went to the kitchen to see, see what was going on. And it, the car stopped, leaned out the window, took a photo of me in the window, and then drove off. And here I was on self-retreat, and I'm thinking, what's going on? I just got my green card. Maybe it's the FBI. Maybe they're seeing <laughs> if I'm really married, and I'm living with this, my spouse. And, da, 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 da. and It was a very paranoid state of fear that I lived with all week for that retreat. So to buy into the mind, to buy into its stories of who we are, especially the self-limiting concepts, is really suffering. And what mindfulness does is it helps to see, helps us to see when we're caught in these stories about ourselves. This is a cartoon that makes light of this. It's, a, it's called A Checklist of Feeling Pathetic. And some of the things that we like to do with our minds that cause us suffering. It says, choose someone and compare yourself unfavorably to them. (laughs) Examine your face closely in the mirror and notice all your flaws. (laughs) Relive embarrassing, awful moments that happened years ago. (laughs) The caption is going, stupid, stupid. (laughs) Make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint. Disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. There's a caption that she's getting a compliment saying, oh, you look great. She's saying, don't patronize me. Resign yourself to believing that from now on, this is how you'll always feel. Sound familiar? Different ways that we make our life complete misery when we turn to the mind and believe the mind. 
My teacher in India, Punjaji, used to say, don't, land a, don't let a single thought land anywhere. Don't let a thought land, take root in the mind. When it takes root, what happens? We believe it, we buy into it, we take it to be the truth. It uh, distorts our reality. So for a four, for example, not letting a thought land anywhere, the thought of insufficiency, the thought of longing, of this idealized longing, what would it be to not let that thought land, but just to see it? Lily Tomlin, speaking of longing, says, I always wanted to be somebody, but now I wish I'd been more specific. There was a retreat I was teaching a while ago and I was working with this chap uh, who was really persecuted by his inner critic and uh, for years and he was an artist and a performer and just giving them hell all his life and he'd been doing mindfulness practice for a while and uh, one day he was just walking down the hill to the dining room and his mind was beating him up for something or other and he had a moment of awareness of realizing that those thoughts, that barrage of endless self-criticism, were just thoughts. It's just the mind creating thoughts. Not real, not to be believed, not to be uh, believed and swallowed and to feel deflated, but just, oh, they're just thoughts. That's the power of mindfulness to create the space so we don't have to believe the constructs, believe the ideas that it comes up with. This is a cartoon from the far side. There's a bunch of cows eating grass, and one's looking up going, hey, wait a minute, this is grass. We've been eating grass. kind of the same with our minds. Huh, been leaving this stuff? What do you mean? It's just grass. Even if, even if our identity that we built up is a is a positive one, is, a, is an inflated one. You know, some, some, some identities are deflated. Some identities are more inflated. Whatever the self has built its construct upon, it's always unstable. You know? We're as good as our last performance or our last conversation or our last job or our last talk or our last whatever it is that we built the structure of our, of our self-worth on, our identity on. And the mind, the, the ego is always looking, it's, it's always comparing to see how it's doing in relationship, to finding its sense of self in relationship. And we do this on retreat. You know, we come in and we, we see, well, who are the good meditators and who are the experienced ones and who are the new ones and 
The mind's always trying to find its place in the scheme of things. We see someone walking really slowly and mindfully, and we go, oh, God damn it. They're way better than I am. We see somebody walking along like a klutz, and they're just all over the place, and we go, oh, at least I'm better than them. (laughs) One of our friends was doing a retreat at IMS in Massachusetts, Anna mentioned, and... um, I was on this particular retreat. It was a three-month course, and there was one particular man who uh, was very loud in his demeanor and just noisy and had a big sort of personality and never quite fully settled down into the silence. And just whatever he did was very loud, banged doors and took off his nylon coat in the middle of the hall. And um, it was one of those people you love to have on retreats. And... uh, my friend was walking along very slowly uh, one day, and this guy comes bumbling down the hall with his big winter coat on and ruffling and scuffling. And, and my friend thought, oh, at least I have less self than he does. <laughs> I might be a bad yogi, but at least I have less self than him. And we're all, we're all in that game of, of trying to look good in some way. You know, we think, well, the three really has that looking good thing down. But, you know, we, we all have these tendencies. These tendencies are so universal to the, to the self-structure. Comparing, rehearsing. How many, how many of you get caught in rehearsing for the groups? You've talked about that. How am I going to look when I speak? You know, speak from the silence. Is it going to be comprehensible? Am I going to have a meltdown? Am I going to be seen as deep or clear? Or you know, so it's a very insecure place when we look to that as a reference point. There's a story from the Jewish tradition. One day, a rabbi, in a frenzy of religious passion, rushed in before the ark fell to his knees and started beating his chest, crying, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. The cantor of the synagogue, impressed by the example of spiritual humility, joined the rabbi on his knees, calling out, I'm nobody too, I'm nobody. The shamus custodian, watching from the corner, couldn't restrain himself either. He joined the other two on his knees, calling out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. At which point the rabbi, nudging the cantor with his elbow, pointed at the custodian and said, Look who thinks he's nobody. (laughs) So the mind has no pride, no shame, and will will find a way to to compete and create a self even out of nothing, out of nothingness. So... What we've been practicing here is the practice of mindfulness, of awareness, which is really the liberating tool in the, your toolbox to see all of these constructs, all of the ways that we paint these castles in the sky that ultimately cause us suffering, cause insecurity, cause distress, cause anguish, cause doubt. And we can learn to disidentify just as the Buddha did did under the Bodhi tree 
as he attained his awakening and saw, oh, it's just the house builder building stories. All these concepts are not ultimately who we really are. So right now, looking to your own experience, just sensing yourself, when you pay attention to your direct experience, when you don't consult your memory, you don't go to the past, you don't go to your ideas of who you are, Just sense into yourself. You might want to close your eyes. What is your experience in this moment? Is there a body? Where's your race or your color or your age? or your gender, or your history. Right now in this moment, what is here when you don't look to the past to understand who you are? So, you can open your eyes. Anybody want to say what what you notice as you just explore what's here? You look to who you are without reference, yeah. Physical sensation. Physical sensation. Mm -hmm. A comforting body and a clear mind. Comforting body and clear mind. You're nobody. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. It felt like starting with a clean slate. The minute you said, I had to say it, don't reference your memory. Mm hmm. I thought, oh, I can start fresh then. Mm hmm. It felt refreshing and freeing. Yeah, refreshing and freeing. Space. Space. Spacious. Spacious. Yeah. Light. Awareness, yeah. Awareness, refreshing, light, spacious, yeah. Potential. Infinite potential, yeah, lovely. Openness. Openness. Warmth. So these these qualities, this this is accessible to you. Do you just just by turning for them for, for just a few moments? Without referencing the mind in the past, we can discover a whole different way to be that's much freer, that's actually much more true when not filtered through our ideas and concepts. This is from Eckhart Tolle. He says, identification with your mind creates an opaque screen of concepts, labels, images, words, judgments, and definitions that block true relationship. 
coming between you and yourself, between you and your fellow man and woman, between you and your nature, between you and God. It is this screen of thought that creates the illusion of separateness, the illusion that there is you and a totally separate other. You then forget the essential fact that underneath the level of physical appearances and separate forms, you are one with all that is. So, there is aware of being aware of your mind without it. It's just light, just that it's just light. I mean, you can be aware of your mind, but it's not the thinking mind, it's the mind full of light. Sorry, I guess it's kind of okay. So I partly like to do that exercise just to, just to show us that there's some relief, that there's a different way to be, a different way to know ourselves, a different way to understand our nature. And we've all touched these moments in different times in our lives. This is not that esoteric. You know, usually in times where we're particularly absorbed, really fully present with something, fully in the moment, you know, in a deep moment of meditation, creativity, lovemaking, when we're out in nature, all these moments when we're fully just here without filter from the past. And when we do that, we notice that the, the usual definitions and boundaries are a little softer, a little more dissolved. We start to feel perhaps more spacious, as people said, or connected, less separate, less isolated. The Sagadada puts it this way when he said, wisdom tells me I am nothing. When we look inside, there's a sort of emptiness there. And he also says, love tells me I am everything. Between the two, my life flows. So it's not that when we strip away the concepts that there's an, uh, there's an empty void that's empty and hollow, it's actually also a fullness. It's, it's pregnant possibility, as somebody mentioned. It's, 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 it's this capacity of potential, like the void, like space, is not empty. It it's, has great potential. And you may reflect on moments in your experience where you felt real deep peace, calm, connection. There are moments probably when you haven't been referencing the past, when you're actually just fully connected in the moment. For me, that most easily happens when I'm outdoors, when I'm in nature. I spend a lot of my time outdoors. And nature isn't self-referencing, isn't thinking how great it is or how much better it is. This oak tree over here is much better than those bays over there, you know, because we've got so much more character the way we twist and turn our branches and limbs and you know, so much moss on our bodies. And No, they're just being. They're just being. They're just being in essence. And so when we go out into nature, we take a walk on our own, we begin to drop that habit of self-referencing and we begin to soften 
feel more at ease. The nature rubs off on us. And we start to feel that sense of connection, that sense of empty fullness. This is a poem from Chinese poet Li Po. Speaks of this beautifully. He says, The birds have vanished into the sky, and the last remaining clouds have drained away. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. The birds have vanished into the sky, and the last remaining clouds have drained away. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. I love that poem because it so beautifully speaks to dropping into presence with something and then we drop beneath that idea of separation. We become empty. So I'd like to do one last exercise before I close and then I want to do a little inquiry with you. Again, just go inside for a second. Just stay in your same posture and just close your eyes. And call to mind your Enneagram type number. And I'm going to say the words, I am a, and then fill in the blank. So I am a, and say to yourself whatever your number is. I am a, in my case, seven. So just feel how that feels when you take on that concept or idea of your Enneagram type. And then let go of the number and just say the words, I am a. See how that feels. Now let the word a go. Just be with I am. And now let go of the word am. Just be with the word I. Sense how that feels. Now let go of the I. Look to your direct experience. Again, anybody want to briefly comment what you notice? You take away those constructs. The unconditioned. The unconditioned. Peace. Peace. Freedom. Space. 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 I don't think I do feel society, but 
one they identify, and the only one that somehow could stick a little bit was I am. Mm-hmm. The rest could kind of slide. Mm-hmm. Okay. And how was I am? It's fine. <laughs> Happiness. Happiness. Joy. So, thank you. I invite you again to to play with that idea of letting go of the concepts that we hold so dearly particularly the concept of I, what happens when we just let that go, even for a moment. We touch something perhaps unknown, sense the sacred or the mystery. So, So I'd like us to do an exercise. At least I think I'd like you to do an exercise. Do an exercise? 820. What do you think? Or just to leave it? Yeah, I'm thinking leave it. Yeah. So we've changed my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I thought about doing an exercise, but I feel like it will just bring the mind back, and, and I, I'd rather leave us in the space of openness and, and clarity. So, um, thank you for your attention. Let's just sit for a moment. So it's time now for walking practice, and we'll come back. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.